Good afternoon. Welcome to the panel uh, NZ National. Today we are with Raven Can and Dr. Claire Robinson. And uh, I thought actually, uh, Raven, I really cut you off there, so I thought I'd give you a chance just to expand on what you've been finishing uh, talking about for your I've been thinking. Oh, yeah, I'll just do this really quickly. Yeah, anyway, no, no, no. so whenever you read um, a, a statistic about the Asian population in New Zealand, um, I just want people to bear in mind that the country's of origin that, or, or descent that they're talking about um, make up a huge percentage of the world and more than you would think. Um, like if I said mm. to you, I, I guess I said the answer, but if I said to you, <clears throat> how many people in the world would, would qualify as Asian as defined by the Department of Statistics? What, what do you think that would be? Wallace or Claire, if you weren't paying attention? I, I, I don't know. A third? Well, a quarter? Well over half. Really? Yeah. Okay. No, but well, you heard me talking before. The, the but I also know that India has something like 1.4 billion and China has 1.3 billion. Yes. And then there's the rest of and then there's the, the Asian rest. continent. Yeah. So the Asian, the Asian countries, which include going up to Afghanistan, um, are 60% of the planet. So what that means is when you see a story about New Zealand's Asian population being, say, yeah. 15% now, uh, that is what that represents is a massive underrepresentation of um, a global... Like, put it this way, the word Asian um, does more lifting than the word heads or tails on a coin. It's over half. And not only is it over half, but the percentages go beyond 100% because a person can identify as any number yeah. of ethnicities. So it's not like there's a certain number of seats on the bus and uh, Asians, as defined, um, take up, you know, 15 of them and, and, and that's as many seats as there are. The seats will go as high as you need. So anyway, that's my bugbear about what, uh, how people hear mm. the word Asian and, and, and what it actually means. Yeah, kia ora, Raven. Uh, Raven can there. Uh, Claire Robinson also with us. Now, to our first story, all non-organic bread making wheat flour in New Zealand will be fortified with folic, folic acid within the next two years. The supplement has been proven to prevent birth defects like spina, spina bifida. Food Safety Minister Aisha Verrill said more than half of pregnancies in New Zealand are unplanned, so it's not practical for all women to take a folic acid supplement a month before they conceive. New Zealand and Australia were set to bring it in in 2009, but it didn't go ahead here due to heavy lobby group pressure who touted unforeseen side effects and saw it as mass vaccination. Now, it's been cited as a huge success. In fact, Australia's Public Health Association calling out one of the top 10 public health successes of the past 20 years. Organic and non-wheat flour will be exempt. So to discuss this decision is Professor Barry Borman, who is Professor of Epidemiology at Massey University and Director of the New Zealand Congenital Anomalies Register. Professor Borman, welcome to the program. Welcome, Wallace. Thank you. Can, are you there? Can you hear me OK? Yes, I can hear you oh, well. Oh, lovely. So and you've in fact said that 8th of July will be remembered as a momentous day for public health in New Zealand. Absolutely. Um, this is um, one of those rare situations in public health where the scientific evidence has been unequivocal uh, for many years and we haven't moved like many other countries in the world to introduce mandatory fortification. So that's why I think it is a, an auspicious day for public health in New Zealand. What does folic acid do, or, or indeed the lack of it? 
Well, one of the things that's been shown by clinical trials, which are regarded as the gold standard in epidemiological studies, it was shown uh, in the early 1990s that increasing a woman's level of folic acid uh, reduces the risk considerably of those birth defects and encephaly and spina bifida, which we call neural tube defects. So if, in fact, you increase the level of intake of folic acid, uh, you decrease the risk of neural tube defects. It's it's been seen as pretty controversial, has it? In fact, even now we're sort of getting some texts in. Uh, 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 but it has been noted that there has been an unusual level of opposition to it in New Zealand. I mean, the US put folic acid in bread in 1998 without controversy. What's the big deal here? I think the controversy has always been about adding something into the food, uh, the food that we consume. Um, but I think that people have been misled by the potential risks that have come up. And I know, just, um, you know that's been disproved markedly. So most of the opposition is what if, but there's no scientific evidence that actually shows the what ifs actually occur. Uh, and so this is, as I said, one of the few instances in public health where the scientific evidence is unequivocal and it's, the delay has actually been how do you implement uh, such a sim- comparatively simple process to reduce uh, the occurrence of these particular uh, birth defects. All right, so our panellists uh, will have some questions or thoughts, and this is folic acid being put into bread in New Zealand. It's going to happen within two years. Uh, Claire? Well, I'm, I'm all in favour of this, um, and but I'm interested, from a, obviously, from a political perspective, because it has been an ideological battle between consumer choice on the one hand and public good on the other, and the last national mm. government erred in favour of consumer choice. But you know, when you step back, you realise that we accept a whole lot of other interventions in the name of um, public good that are contrary to our consumer choice. Traffic lights, road signs, you know, anything in the Health and Safety Act, the Crimes Act, even milk pasteurisation. We do a whole lot of things on behalf of people and this is um, this is just adding to it. And I think where the evidence stacks up and the Australian evidence really shows that since they brought it in, it has made a difference, then I think the public good outweighs consumer choice on this one. Barry? Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with Claire. Uh, and in fact, it's been frustrating for those of us uh, presenting the science and the evidence that we've taken so long. And in fact, Claire is con- totally right, is that the issue has always been how do we get this very simple uh, preventive measure across the line so it can actually benefit uh, the population as a whole. And it has been a political uh, on sides of people have fought over the various issues and brought up various red herrings. Um, but in fact, uh, when we always say we're evidence-based in policy, this is one area where it's clear-cut and it's been shown by you know, 70 other countries in the world have actually implemented um Fortification. Mm. What do you reckon, Raven? Well, I'm no scientist, so I really want to weigh in on this. Yeah. Like, um, are you meant to? Are women meant to ingest this before romance? So here's what I'm wondering: is is why is it going into bread? Maybe they should be putting this stuff into like wine or beer or some romantic, I don't know, oysters, whatever it is that really starts the mood when you're wanting to get your romance on. Gosh Almighty, Professor Borman, what's your thoughts on this? Well, that's actually quite interesting because some years ago a um, 
an esteemed professor of paediatrics, Bob Elliott. Bob Elliott. Uh, in fact, we were having a meeting to discuss this. How do we actually deliver folic acid mm. to, to women? Mm. And as you mentioned, that part of the problem is that uh, using tablets, uh, unplanned, and that doesn't work too often. And Bob actually did say that he thought adding it to beer would be a good idea because at that time he thought that younger women uh, were drinking a lot more beer than uh, previously. So, um, But the, the key thing is it really doesn't matter how it's got. It's actually um, as long as women are taking an increased level of folic acid is the important thing. Many of the studies that were done, and particularly the ones in China, actually used um, supplements, which are the tablets. But as you mentioned previously, uh, not everybody takes the tablets. Um, and so this is actually a mechanism by which we can increase the level of folic acid for, for women that are potentially going to become pregnant. Professor Bourne, what about those who will say, uh, look, there is plenty of natural uh, folic acid in, uh, in the foods we eat. Uh, super leafy greens, the likes of uh, you know spinach, other vegetables, you've got uh, lentils, you've got chickpeas, lots of folic acid everywhere. Such romantic foods. And I don't, I don't think people eat enough of those on this a regular is, basis. This is what people are eating just before a date, or actually on a date. Oh, Raven. For bread, sprinkle that folic acid There's on to spice it up. There's nothing wrong with a lentil soup and a glass of mm, cab sav. Sexy times. <laughs> well, the, the, that's a great idea. The only problem is that um, the bioavailability of those vegetables, green leafy vegetables and so on, is only about 50%. So you're not going to get the Enough. amount of folic yeah. acid checks you require. Not only that, the, the, when you put it in the context, pay you... How many women are actually going to consume that amount of uh, green leafy vegetables? Not <laughs> on a date. Uh, not on every day. Um, and, you know, I've used it when um, talking to students and said to them, well, you know, here's a 100 grams of cabbage. And how much? You, how many of you are going to eat that every, every day? day. And, yeah. uh, you don't get a very positive response to that. I think mm. chocolate, red wine, beer... Actually, just sprinkle okay. it onto pillowcases. All right. Well, People can inhale it. <laughs> okay, so maybe you can be part of the next uh, study there. Come right? in. But, but on, on, on a final note, before we go to our next guest, uh, many are saying uh, that this could have present, prevented so much heartbreak yeah, if it had true. been introduced earlier in 2009, Barry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, the unfortunate thing is, as I said previously, Wallace, that um, the evidence from two clinical trials carried out, very robust trials actually came out in 1990. In the 1990s, the Americans were quick off uh, onto it and they mandated very quickly a number of others. Um, the shame is that it took so long for New Zealand to catch up. The Australians did it. Uh, we were meant to, we didn't. Um, and the sad thing is that we've actually had children being born with these terrible conditions that could easily have been prevented. And that's why it's a remarkable uh, state day for public health in New Zealand mm. that finally we've got what is an easily preventable, well-proven uh, preventive measure and we're actually going to do something about it. That is Professor Barry Borman there, Professor of Epidemiology at Massey, who said that today will be remembered as a momentous day for public health in New Zealand. What do you think? Text us 2101 or email the panel at rnz.co.nz. It's 19 past four.
In Stuff Today, another article on worker shortages in the hospitality industry. While borders remain closed, keeping out migrant workers, job sites Seek and Trade Me are still recording the highest levels of job listings ever. One catering firm owner says they are turning down new contracts because they cannot employ enough staff. And unless diners pay more... He can't raise wages to make the vacant positions more attractive to New Zealand workers. So what's the solution? With us is Alan McDonnell, Head of Advocacy and Strategy at the Employers and Manufacturers Association. Alan, kia ora. Welcome to the panel. Hey, Wallace. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. Come on through. So, look, the situation seems pretty dire. What are you hearing from hospitality business owners? Well, the hospital sector, I think, is the, the, the sharp point, the, the symptom of a much wider problem. Uh, and, you know, you've seen, obviously, Sid closing his restaurants over the holidays and, and others that are in that situation. You're seeing a number of uh, small cafes, restaurants, uh, working reduced hours, shutting down at weekends or shutting more during the week. Uh, and those workers aren't just there, but they are at, I guess, the sharp end of the problem because this is industry-wide, country-wide and sector-wide. Is sector- it industry-wide? Sector-wide. Is yeah. it really? Yep. So we've got manufacturers working on reduced shifts at the moment because they haven't got people. Uh, you've got people that want to uh, upgrade or you know, uprate their productivity and they just can't get people in. So immigration's a, a big factor in this. Uh, but also the New Zealanders that were supposed to be coming home haven't. So 25% fewer New Zealanders came home in the first six months of this year. Where did they go? Year. They stayed overseas. So if you look overseas where you're seeing things like free travel through borders in Europe now, you're seeing the US really ramp up its vaccination program. So those sorts of factors that were indicating New Zealanders uh, would come home are not as hasn't pressing come as to pass. hasn't come to pass. And, we, you know, frankly, we're lagging. I'll jump into our panellists soon, but uh, just as <laughs> a, a quite a heightened illustration of the problem, the fact that, a, you know, a restaurant like French Cafe, which is arguably one of the top ten in, in New Zealand or actually in, this, in Australasia, for them to have to close because they can't get staff... That highlights the problem, huh? It's a pretty drastic step. And, you know, a lot of the focus has gone on minimum wage and HOSPO and minimum... It's not As it should, though. Well, yeah, there's an argument there, but it's not just minimum wage positions that are the problem. It's also higher skilled, higher waged. You just can't find the people. Uh, I'm sure Sid's looking probably at his relief chef and can't find one. They're not there. Um, I happened to walk down my main street the other day and there were three little cafes and restaurants all looking for various grades of chefs. Um, They're just not there. And and to have people having to close at a time when they've been struggling anyway uh, is, you know, arguably the wrong thing. And, and if you come back to your minimum wage argument, and, and I'm not saying yes or no to a minimum wage, but it's gone up 27% in the last three years to $20 an hour. Each one of those steps, if you were, say, a small cafe running a team of five on the minimum wage... You had to sell 3,500 more cups of coffee. Put your price up. $7 a latte, Alan. Well, that might be the answer, but uh, you'd have to get everyone to agree to do yeah. that. All right, let's get on bring our panellists clear. Right, well, I'm going to sound <coughs> a little bit like a heretic because I think um, we've got a problem, a structural problem in our hospo sector. It's boutique and it's cute and it's small and it's local, but it's also very expensive with very high overheads. And if you go to larger economies, they have franchises and big restaurants and cafes, and they're not all horrible and nasty, and they don't all have bad quality food and service. And what we're talking about when people are saying that um, COVID and the closed borders are constraining the ability of businesses to grow is what they're really saying is the ability of individual people with cooking talent are um, 
are being constrained in their ability to set up businesses and maintain their businesses. And while that suits one of our narratives and our national narratives about the self-made entrepreneur, actually what our economy probably needs are fewer cafes and restaurants and more people working in, in like sectors like the high-tech sector, the weightless economy that are going to provide higher salaries than the hospo sector. I mean, I, I, you know, I feel bad because my son is a student and he works in hospo um, and, you know, it does employ a lot of people. But actually, we are over-dependent on businesses that, uh, that pay low wages, hospo, tourism, horticulture, okay. nursing. Well, uh, hold that thought. Right, Raven, you come in and we can fold those thoughts into Alan's response here. Raven? OK, I'm also wondering, would all this be solved if we just had way more MIQ spots? Right, MIQ's woefully underused, um, so it's never run at more than about 70% capacity, and I believe it's down around 40 or 50% at the moment. But even there, so construction sectors saying they might need 50-plus thousand people in the next 12 to 18 months, um, and MIQ's offering them 400 spaces a month. You don't right. quite get the maths in that one. What um, do you make of Claire's comments? Um, there may be some structural issues, but I'd really like—I really wouldn't like to be the person that said to a small business person, "You can't open because there's enough restaurants or cafes in our main street." Um, that's really not how we do things Claire, in New Zealand. Not an answer. Not practical. Well, and it's, not, and not, it's not, not an answer. You can't do that overnight. But you know, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when um, when the uh, the wine industry pulled out all its um, what was it, Muller Thurgau grapes, because actually that wasn't. Was it Muller Thurgau, Raybon? I'm just looking at you. Um, I think no, it was. I'm not going to come to your rescue <laughs> with a great variety. Good. Yeah. <laughs> but they were paid to do that. Though. Yeah, yeah, but there was, there, was a, um, there was a sense that there was a structural problem in the economy and we had to do, make some change like that. And I just, I, I just think sometimes we default to things that are local, um, small boutique uh, in terms of our business enterprises when we probably need to be thinking a little bit larger and more ambitious in terms of our, our, our business ambitions. Yeah, I don't disagree. I mean, one of the, thing, one of the things we're working on is uh, Industry 4.0, which is bringing technology into the manufacturing sector and things like that. Mm. Um, but you need to invest. Um, and one of the side effects of what's happening at the moment is we will automate an awful lot of processes. You mentioned horticulture. So it costs about $2 million, I think, to bring in one of those automated um, kiwifruit pickers. Right. So at the moment, you're seeing a lot of cost going on to the employer side of things, you know, uh, minimum wage increases, living wage, um, a whole lot of other things that are coming in. But there's no focus, no similar focus on the productive side of the economy. You know, where's the encouragement to invest in your business? Yep, where's the encouragement right. to invest in your, in your skills and your people? Because yep. they're, they're very, very hard to get. Okay. Uh, and so there's a lot of poaching be, going this on. This could be the answer. This could be a bit yeah. of a... So there's uh, no investment on the other side yes. of the equation, and that's the problem. You can't mm. have all the good things that we want, higher wages, better welfare, all those things, unless you've got an economy that's uh, pumping along as well. And at the moment it is pumping, but it's in danger of stopping or the pump slowing down because we haven't got people. Good on, to, good on you, Alan. Thanks for coming to the studio. I do appreciate it. That is Alan McDonald, Head of Strategy, Advocacy and Strategy at the Employers and Manufacturers Association. Kia ora. 26 past for the panel. Uh, as a retired midwife, Suzanne, folic acid in some foods, wonderful news. The ignorance of the aunties appalls me as they are usually the ones that have the knowledge and can afford to eat correctly. I agree. I've worked in the coffee industry for years and it's become too niche and it's now a flooded market. Things are too fancy, too high-end. Don't cater to the daily cafe user. Go back to the 90s where cafes were simple and good, Raven. Hmm? <laughs>
<laughs> Don't drag me you into could, this. No, you could, I just thought you could relate to that. You know, well, he's on to us like it's 10th coffee film yeah, today. See? I, yeah. I do contribute to that economy. <laughs> and I'm not sure that people... I mean, it's not like there are two choices, right? It's not like someone no. is deciding whether to be a sous chef or to go work for Microsoft. Well, mm. they could. Right. A lot of a lot of people like that do go into sous chef, but they could easily be going into Microsoft or another New Zealand mm. high tech company. Uh, I agree with Claire. Far too many cafes and restaurants serving overpriced, pretentious food. Well, that's that's contentious. I can't see, but, the, but there are, and there it's a it's a big market, isn't it? The cafe sector in let's take Wellington for example, Claire. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's inter- it's really interesting, isn't it? Because you look around. Wellington, and there we we pride ourselves on being a cafe city, but mm. again, twenty thirty years ago, we didn't have very many cafes at all. Um, we may do with horrible coffee in the workplace, but but I think that it's my point again is just that it it is cheaper, it is cheap, it is easy to go into um, setting up a cafe, hard to keep it going. Yeah. But actually, we need to be thinking more about how we invest in more productivity, as the last speaker said. Mm. Raven? Um, I, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, uh, I like cafes, I like restaurants, I think they're a good thing. You know, when, for example, Wellington, sort of all those places got shut down by the, the dude from Sydney who, who went to all those locations of interest, that was quite inconvenient because then you had to, you know, we had, we had fewer options. Um, but I... Yeah, I can't help thinking there's a there there is a there there's a bigger question behind all this. I'm not sure what it is, but yep. I'm suspicious. Uh, Fiona says my son is a chef and on a salary he is expected to work at least 50 hours for this. It is hard, bad paying work. Mm. So that's been a bit of a theme. We've talked about this before uh, on the program. That it's actually it's really uh, it, it is tough work. Uh, it can be hard, hugely satisfying, but it is hard. Uh, on another note. Um, uh, the text here, I had a baby with a neural tube defect in 1993. The baby died in utero. I was advised to take folic acid in advance of further pregnancies by my obstetrician on the basis of the new research, which I did. I went on to have four children without any further defects. So thank you very much for all your feedback this afternoon. To come on the programme, we discuss this um, person who sustained some pretty severe facial injuries after being brutally attacked by a pit bull in Auckland. Uh, Shea Lordy, who's just left Middlemore Hospital following some pretty big surgery to her face. So we discuss the issue of big dogs and parks with her partner, LaSalle, who's coming on the programme. And the four-day week. Um, do you agree with uh, that happening? Iceland has done it, uh, what they say, with, with outstanding results. So do you think that she should be part of society here in Aotearoa? It is 4.30. You're on the panel with Claire Robinson and Raven Can. It's time for Headlines.